0: Hey guys, John Polomy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, February 18th, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not authorized by your government to give you personal investment advice. I'm not... Uh, certified to do that. Please do your own due diligence, your own research. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so one of the things before I get into the slides I wanted to talk about was uh, just a housekeeping issue. There was something for you guys listening on the podcast. Um, I upload it via a app called Anchor, and it distributes it to various platforms like uh, Apple and Spotify and things like that and something was jacked up with it last week so it didn't work. I uh, was able to get it to upload yesterday. It was working fine so I don't I don't know if that was just a one-off or what the deal was but um, hopefully uh, going forward we won't have any more issues with that. So let's get into this. Um, this guy right here is the guy I follow on Twitter. He was also recently interviewed on Wealthion. He's an Italian guy. Um, He's, I forget his last name, but uh, I would follow this guy on Twitter. He's pretty good. I like, uh, I want to read this tweet and then it kind of segues into what I want to talk about uh, for the beginning of this uh, video. So it says here, so most economies produced sluggish growth with zero interest rates for almost a decade. Yet they are not going to suffer from interest rates at four to five percent for a prolonged period of time. Okay, got it. And so the point being is is that you know a lot of countries, mostly your developed countries in the West, OECD countries, um, had very low interest rates for like like this tweet said for almost a decade. The EU, the US, you know, coming out of the Great Financial Crisis, we had these super low interest rates. As a matter of fact. We had interest rates at a 5,000 year low. And it's not like we had super amounts of growth during that time. You know, it took the pandemic and basically shutting down the economy, and then the fiscal impetus from the federal government, various governments around the world basically just to helicopter money dropping checks into people's bank accounts through all types of programs that really precipitated or was one half of the equation of the. Uh, inflation that we saw and that we're coming off of now, because you know, as we shut down the economies, we shut down production. Yet we added money to people, more money with less goods equals inflation. And so the point being here is this kind of segues into uh, what I wrote about in the February newsletter of the Actionable Intelligence Alert, my base case for 2023. And I heard a, another uh, analyst use a quip that he for his for basically my views similar to his. And he called it a hop, a drop, and then a pop. And so the idea was, you know, we have this view or people have this view, it seems to be prevalent, although it seems to be evaporating now or going away, that we were heading for a so-called soft landing. And that was elevating um, stock prices, asset prices. We've had a the pop, you know, the first part of the year, asset prices have performed relatively well. Um, what I think is not being looked at is the fact that, you know, we're at 40 year highs of the Fed funds rate, interest rates. And with an economy that's in a corporate sector, basically just call it an economy in general with the government, the entire economy basically at record amounts of indebtedness. And so, you know, it wasn't like we've been into this rate-raising cycle for two years and we felt the full effect of the 5% interest rates, right? It takes up to a year after the Fed raises rates for those rates to make their way through the economy and have their ultimate effect. Now, we've already seen, and we'll talk about that in some other slides coming up, The uh, how the housing market has basically almost seized up, and I have a chart here uh, about that. But people are not, you know, it's a lagging effect over time as they raise rates. Remember, in December of 2021, which was just 14 months ago, the Federal Reserve was saying we had rates at zero still, or very close to zero, and the Fed was saying, and many people were saying or thinking that inflation was going to be transitory now it is coming down because the economy is slowing the rates are having the desired effect um not across the economy like a lot of people are harping on the jobs you know well the jobs there's so many jobs out there well the, that's another lagging indicator okay that's the last thing you're going to see um as the economy slows down you'll see You know, when we look at the leading economic indicators or the conference board leading indicators, they've been down for like 10 months or something, you know, six uh, consistently month after month. And we, that the leading indicators have 100% accuracy in forecasting recessions. So the point I'm making is I think that we're in that pop stage, you know, which we're, it's pretty much ending where we had the pop because people were thinking, okay, well, the data is showing uh, that we're going to have a soft landing. People were rationalizing this, and they weren't, and they were looking at, well, the job. As long as job growth is good, as long as unemployment's low, that's going to support the economy. Like I said, you know, there's been a lot of layoff announcements, and you have to remember, um, you're not seeing. Uh, there's different websites that track it. just because a, like Google or somebody comes out and says they're going to lay off 20,000 people. That's not like they got laid off that day. Um, there's severances involved. There's timing. There's in a state like California, there's a notification process. So the point from when the announcement is made to those people show up at the unemployment office and get registered and it starts affecting the data can be months. That's why it's a lagging indicator. Not Not only that, most businesses are going to try to hold on to employees as long as they can uh, because if you spend a lot of time and money training someone and they're doing their work at your business and then you have to let them go when business eventually does recover and it will recover eventually, then what do you do? The person may not be available to come back to work where you, where you were working so you have to start the process again. So what I'm trying to say here is, is that, you know, Things weren't so hot when we had record low 5,000 year interest rates. And now we have rates that are at 40 year highs. And I don't think we felt the full effect of this yet. And I think that as we move out towards the end of the first quarter into the second quarter, that's when we're gonna see the drop. You're gonna start seeing corporate earnings starting to compress. We already have negative liquidity, right? Liquidity is being constricted with the QT and with the Fed raising rates. That's offset a little bit with some things that are going on at Treasury, but long t- long term, uh, you know, as the months go by, that boa constrictor effect of squeezing and squeezing the economy, you know, I've already seen projects that would have went forward uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, when rates were a lot lower. Now that rates are up, your hurdle rate to get a project or your IR, to get the certain IRR, your internal rate of return is down. And so this stuff takes time. And I heard another analyst make a point, which I want to reiterate, which we don't think about. And I should reiterate this. It doesn't just apply to this forecasting of the economy or the probabilities on here. It also should be taken into consideration when we're talking about some of the stock speculations and investments we're involved with everything always takes longer than you think. And even if you're somebody that, like myself, that knows better now, it even takes longer than I think, i.e. look at uranium, look at some of these other longer term things that we're dealing with. Um, These things always take longer than people think. So keep that in your thinking. I think Wall Street uh, doesn't have a tendency to do that. So um, this is Kind of you know, and then I think though, as we move the second and third into the fourth quarter, it's going to become very apparent that the economy is slowing down. Uh, you're going to see profits start to constrict, multiples will then have to come down. Uh, analysts will then be baking that in, and then you know, the market's going to come down as that multiple compresses to compensate for those lower earnings, okay? And that's why I think you know, you could see. In a worst-case scenario, maybe you could see the S&P come down by another 20 to 25%. That wouldn't be out of the question. It would be well within the norm of what we've seen in past recessions. So, again, I'm not an economist. I'm not going to sit here and argue data points. Leading economic indicators are showing weakness. They're showing they're, they're, that in previous cycles has indicated recession. The housing market is basically frozen. Um, You know, you got a company like KBR that had 68% cancellations, I think they recently reported. That's way, way above what's normal. So you're getting these little vignettes coming out. So I'm looking at probabilities. And so we have the drop throughout the, you know, and we still haven't seen like a corporate high yield debt blowout yet. That's one of the things I was looking for with a lot of these zombie companies having to roll their debt, the inability to do that. And then you know businesses starting to have to go into default and then be restructured. We haven't seen a big wave of that yet. I'm anticipating that still. So um, as the economy, like I said, slows down and you know possibly enters a recession, the ability to generate sufficient cash flow to service your debt will become more difficult for some of these companies. And then typically the the rates go up for that the, that junk debt and it blows out and that's usually an indication also. That's when we can make a tremendous amount of money. Some of these things are going to lead to, if it plays out like I think, to tremendous opportunities for us as we come out of this and the li- reliquification restarts when the Fed eventually does pivot and starts doing QE and lowering rates. You know, when they lower rates, they're not going to take them down in quarter-point uh, increments. They, they they cut very rapidly. If you go back and look um, how how it works, so there's an opportunity in bonds there. Uh, But, you know, you got to kind of get your timing right. Right now, there's really no hurry to go out. I mean, I'm building a list of stocks that I want to own outside of the portfolio. There are longer term businesses, investments that I want to own for the long term. But I see no hurry to run in there because if we're going to be looking at another 20 to 25 percent drop in the S&P, you know, in a bear market, 95 percent of the stocks go down. Okay, let me say that again. In a bear market, most of the stocks will go down, even ones that have good fundamentals, just because of the liquidity and the sediment being, you know, liquidity shrinking and the sediment being horrible, uh, it just drags everything down, right? That's where you have to get to that point of maximum pessimism, where all of the buy the dip people, all, you know, I mean, all these people, speculators are driven out and people like kind of give up on the market. And that's when you're going to be looking to, re- to enter. And that will coincide with a, remember, this markets are forward looking, so we have to look forward six months to a year. What's, you know, what's the market pricing in? And right now, uh, I think that soft landing uh, fantasy is going to start dissipating in the second, third, and into the fourth quarter. And then that takes us into a situation, I think, where um, people are going to be anticipating the Fed reversing course, pausing and reversing curse. You know, I'm hearing analysts saying, well, the Fed could take it up. Two more um, 25 basis points, and they're going to hold it for a year or two. Uh, I I don't see it. I I don't see that happening. So, um, because I think once the economy turns down, it turns down pretty quick and it starts feeding on itself. So, again, I'm not an economist. I'm just trying to identify what the probabilities are and then looking at the data points that are coming out that in the past have validated that. Now, we got to be careful about confirmation bias and with timing okay and that's why I don't think it's you know if you have cash there's nothing wrong with going on treasury direct and getting four and a half and five percent t-bills you can go on there and get you know I think the shortest durations a month or maybe two weeks I don't know and you could still get you know like over four percent and you just keep rolling them until you know it looks like this thing's going to turn around and at least you're generating some decent return I mean why would you you know if you can get four, four, I mean, I think I was e- even on Fidelity, you can go on there and look for CDs that have, I think, $1,000 increments with pretty decent banks that are paying, you know, three months. They're paying an annual equivalent yield of, like, I got one the other day for like 4.45%. So there's nothing wrong with that. You know, or getting T-bills, which are risk-free, a little bit over four uh, percent, while you sit here and wait. You don't have to just keep it in a, you know, an account where you're not getting any any return. Cash is being paid now, and we are in this uh, disinflationary uh, situation, which is, I think, a cyclical phenomenon that will reverse uh, once the Fed changes its uh, tightening mode to expansionary which I think will happen later this year or early 2024. That's my kind of base case right now. Uh, I wanted to throw this in here because, you know, even though we're going to have this period of disinflation, which we're in because inflation is coming in, um, we have to remember that longer term, these deficits are going to really be weighing on the economy and they're going to be inflationary. And I'll kind of... Keep that in the back of your head. So, you have the secular pressure from deficits and this entitlement spending, and the unfunded liabilities are going to be pressuring the budget going forward. Um, you can refer to my article um, about Social Security and Medicare ultimately destroying the United States as a political entity. I think that will happen. It's just math um, because, it, you know, I'm not going to get into that. You can go around my website and read it, but you can see. Um, percentage of GDP, the deficits, you know, this is even without recession. So this is like going back to 1973, your deficits as a percentage of GDP on the left. um, And you see, this was the pandemic. This was the financial crisis. This was the pandemic. So you see what they do in these situations. This was the, um, there was a period during the Clinton administration, we actually had surpluses, but that went away. And so you see over time the you know you're gonna be running five percent uh you know trillion trillion dollar plus deficits at infinitum, you know, and then you're gonna you're gonna tell me that rates are gonna stay higher for longer. I don't buy it. You know, how how is the treasury gonna roll all the debt, you know, and as this debt rolls off, it doesn't immediately all of it go to the highest rates, but the rate structure, the terms aren't gonna increase over time. I think the most recent interest outlays for the debt are like $800 billion a year now. If you go to the St. Louis Fred website, you can look at so, you know, a large per- percentage of your budget is not really getting anything. It's just interest on the debt accumulated. And so people are going to tell me that we're going to have rates higher for longer. No, we're going to have like a mild fever of inflation, I think, with periods of disinflation over this decade, because that's one way to mitigate the effects of running a deficit. That's one of the other reasons why I, is one of the tailwinds, I believe, for hard assets. So you see, uh, we are in a disinflationary. We've kind of peaked a while ago. This is coming down. Yes, you can look at every number, every month that it comes out, and there's gonna be things in there that I give you um, pause. But in the end, um, this is now trending down. You know the Fed's talking about this two percent. I'm not sure we make it to two percent, but you know if we get down under four percent, does the Fed call it good and just somehow wordsmith it that it that's good enough? I mean we'll see. I mean I, no one can predict the future, but you know to say that we're in an inflationary environment, well we're in a we're that peaked in a, last summer, and we're in a, we've been in a disinflationary environment without the full effect of the full tightening remember the fed still removing still has qt going at about a little bit less than 100 billion a month and the rate they're projecting uh you know another 25 basis points and the full effect of all the other previous rate uh increases has not been felt yet So this is the chart I want to show about uh, existing home sales. This is just existing home sales. Um, They're uh, falling faster than they were during the great financial crisis. So the financial crisis, I mean, here's the current uh, methodology. Here's the um, housing market leading into the financial crisis. These are, this is the effect of basically taking rates up so quickly, the fastest rate increases uh, that we've seen in, you know, decades or ever, I think, is, I think if I remember, I mean, we're not the highest rates, but the quickest that they've been raised. And so that's just basically clamped down on the housing market. Now, I think housing on the back end of this, when we come out of it, is going to be a tremendous, tremendous uh opportunity to make a lot of money whether you go and buy houses or you know one of the most successful home builders is this nvr corporation you should study them because they have a business model that's a lot different than most of the other home builders they don't go out and buy land banks and hold all this land that uh, screws up their balance sheet they basically uh, get options on land and they've been profitable in a tremendous growth stock even through all these previous recessions and i Uh, you know, I'm looking at a company now that is a legacy home builder that its management is all new management. They came from NVR. And so these are the kind of things I'm looking at because they're going to, they're adopting the same model that NVR had. But again, it's not time to buy the stock. Um, it's really cheap now. I think it can get cheaper, but on the back end of this thing, there's going to be opportunities there, you know, like in, uh, the the su- suppliers of like uh, I forget the name of the companies builders plus and things like that I think there's these these you know companies that supply all the building materials. Um, these things are getting shellacked right now. So, uh, the and they're restructured businesses and they're tr- generating cash flow still and buying back shares. So there's going to be opportunity when we come out of this. And why? Because the millennials now have reached the stage that the baby boomers were in in the early 80s um that cohort of people uh, was uh, late i don't even want to say like uh early 80s into the early 80s starting probably in the mid 70s as they were maturing getting married and having families you got a tremendous home building surge that's why people were still buying houses and having families even when rates were like 14 or 15 percent uh, because when you get married, your wife wants a house and she wants to start having kids and you know you're going back and forth to your job and you're, yes, honey, yes, okay, uh-huh. we need to get a house. Uh, junior's on the way. that this is just the way of the world, this is out nature. And so this cohort of millennials now is now entering that similar time. Now they're kind of shut out by price right now because prices advanced so high because of the record low rates, but that's coming in now, right? And so people are biding their time. And I think you're going to have a tremendous, when you come out of this thing, you're going to have a tremendous surge in the opportunity in, uh, you know, home sales, real estate, uh, home builders, things like that. But again, this is not the right time because sediment is terrible. The thing's freezing up. Look at it. And there's no reason to jump the gun. You just wait. And eventually, this uh, you know, rates will turn around and, and, you know, rinse and repeat. um so i got this uh here we go all right so let's switch gears to uh oil so oil is probably oversupplied right now for a couple reasons that's why we're seeing price weakness um you know we have to respect the price like I said before, longer term, we have have a thesis around underinvestment, which is going to jump up and bite us. But right now, we do have economic weakness. We're kind of oversupply with the Russians really jammed the market and pumped out a lot of oil. You had uh, the SPR is now finally winding down, although we did have the congressional mandated, uh, I think, 26 million barrels that came out. But we're getting to the end of that. Uh, and so we have... Cross currents going on, right? We have kind of some weakening demand in the West because of ec- because of the economy, but yet we have China coming back online. We have the Russians pushed out a bunch of oil prior to the sanctions, and then we also have you know a kind of change. Now we're going into refinery turnaround season, where refineries start shutting down for maintenance and preparing for the um, gasoline season, right? Not only that, our winter really wasn't that bad, so heating oil demand wasn't necessarily as much as we thought. You know, we thought with the gas, with the mild winter we had in Europe, we would see a lot of gas to oil switching. We didn't see that. So, this is this is a perfect example about forecasting the future, right? Um, sometimes you don't get it right. You you think you have it right, and then you know things go totally opposite. So, this is why we're seeing, I think, weakness in the uh, oil price. Um, but we'll have to balance the weakness in demand, uh, the slight little bit of oversupply we're in now with the effects of the full reopening of China and what's going to happen there. So, um, if we have a, I don't anticipate having a great financial crisis type economic shock, um, we have China coming back. I've talked about how China's goosing their economy, how they are reliquifying. I mean, they're pouring tremendous amounts of money in, into the um, economy, uh, liquidity. Not only that, the pent-up demand of the Chinese consumer. And so we know that things are happening. So one of the, one of the things is uh, jet fuel demand is coming back. Uh, where I can uh, and have been able to, I will put the artic- links to articles where I get this information. You can read it for yourself. But anyways, uh, with the Chinese economy reopening, the revival of aviation has gathered momentum in early 2023. You know, you can actually go and look at some of the airport operators. There's companies that operate airports. They have concessions. And you will see with some of them, they or most of them, put, show how traffic is increasing through the airports. And in many of these places, we're still not back to pre-pandemic, okay? So we're heading that way, but uh, it's it takes time. And so it says, uh, for the first time since the pandemic grounded the industry, the number of commercial flights has surpassed 2019 levels on a sustained basis. This is worldwide. That's not just in China. Um, according to data from Flight Radar 24 the seven-day rolling average flight count has stood above the 2019 level every day since February 6th. So since February 6th of this month, we are having more flights than we had in before the pandemic. The latest tally puts the seven-day average at 109,330 flights compared to 105,724 flights four years ago. Um, What I didn't put in here is to caveat this, is that the actual jet fuel demand is slightly lower though. And that's because as fleets have been upgraded to more fuel efficient aircraft, that's having kind of an effect. However, I suspect that um flights are going to continue to grow as they were growing in the past we get back on to that growth rate just because aviation as that's one of the that's one of the things as people start to enter the middle class in these emerging markets they want to start taking trips and using airplanes and going different places i mean i was uh one of the investments i was looking at or one of the indications i was looking at for chinese demand coming back was the casino that's in phnom penh i think it's called naga world and it's uh, it's not all the way back, but uh, I saw something on Twitter. Somebody put it on there. You can see a lot. They run a lot of junkets from China with Chinese gamblers, and it's it's coming back pretty strong. So you're seeing it come back. You're going to see like in India and these other places that are emerging markets. Air travel's increasing. Uh, one of the stocks in the portfolio uh, owns the uh, the majority stake in the Bangalore International Airport. It's traffics back to pre-pandemic levels, both internal and external, and so this is going to be a driver. This was one of the uh, components that was lagging in the fuel complex was jet fuel, and it's coming back now. So again, you can't just say, "Well, we're having a recession, Uh, you know, it's over." You got to balance, try to look at, okay, what's the real recessionary effect of lowered, you know, gasoline and diesel demand in the West vis-a-vis the emerging markets, relentless upward pressure on demand. So we'll see. Okay, speaking of China, um, China to import record amounts of crude. I mean, one of the arguments I was seeing against the Chinese effect on oil prices was, well, they stockpiled all this crude during the pandemic, so they're not gonna have to go back to market. That may have been the case, but what we're seeing is uh, Chinese uh, going out and paying for cargoes at a record pace. So it says China is expected to import a record amount of crude in 2023 due to increased demand for fuel as people travel more following the dismantling of pandemic controls and as a result of new refineries coming on stream. The prospect of strong demand from the world's biggest importer will be another bullish factor for an oil market already supported by the OPEC Plus Producers Group's output cuts and Western sanctions on Russian exports. Jet fuel consumption, according to Sun, would reach 90% of pre-pandemic levels by the end of 2023. So another data point, point. Uh, one of the things that has done very well in our portfolio, and I'm Tracking it more to luck, being in the right place at the right time. We had a several holdings in crude tankers, Suez, uh, operators of Suez Max and VLCCs, which are very large crude carriers, and also one company that's called a clean products tanker company. It just ships like refined products and chemicals, and that stock has taken off. Why? Because there has been a low amount of tankers built. And as tankers re- are retired, it's a supply and demand situation. Not only that, now that we have all these sanctions on Russia, we, like I've said before, I like using this word, we have discombobulated the efficient transfer of oil and products that we had prior to the war in Ukraine. And now because of sanctions, we've had to reroute these the supply chains with a limited amount of ships, okay? This amount of ships that we had... uh was sufficient when we had everything as efficient as possible, when you were loading product and Baltic ports in Russia and taking it over to Baltic ports in Germany and Poland and the Netherlands. Okay. Now you can't use that anymore. You have to bring oil from India or these refineries in China or the Middle East. And so you have more days, uh, more ton miles as it's called, uh, the charges are higher. And so you don't have the ability to increase the amount of, uh, crude tankers or, um, clean product tankers, but you still have, you still are returning now because of the pandemic being over pre-pandemic levels of fuel demand. So that sector has been booming. So that's why I say there's always a bull market somewhere. There's always second and third order effects to everything. And that's, you know, I'm not saying that we predicted because that there was going to be a war and that we we're going to have sanctions against, you know, the one of the largest crude exporters in the world. And we we're going to screw up the whole distribution of fuel, of oil products around the world. I didn't know that was going to happen, but it was uh being that we we had bought these companies because of the supply-demand uh dynamic that was present uh in the tanker market. And we got we're getting the effects now of this uh discombobulation. The those stocks have been performing very, very well. IEA boosts global oil demand forecast. Now a lot of people dunk on the iea they say they're never right but you know we have to base some our thoughts on something okay so uh, again we have to be careful of confirmation bias and a lot of times the iea gets it wrong but you know we're seeing it already like i said in the um rates for crude tankers uh as oil demand goes up the amount of tankers that are available is not present and they have to to satisfy all the transportation and now they have to travel even further. Um, that's given me the indication that we are going to see increased demand. I think I put a chart up, you know, by the end of 2023 or into 2024, we'd be well at 102, 103 million barrels a day. Um, and I'm not sure with the underinvestment, the world would be, I think, sufficiently undersupplied in that type of market. But again, we're going to have to see how things play out over this year. The IEA boosted forecast for global oil demand as China reopens its economy following years of anti-COVID lockdowns. The agency raised global demand estimates by a hefty 500,000 barrels a day for the first quarter and by just under half as much for the year as a whole. As a result, world consumption will climb by 2 million barrels a day this year to average 101.9 million a day. It said in a monthly report. Nonetheless, the IEA said global oil markets will likely remain in surplus in the first half of the year amid surprising robust output from Russia. That's exactly right. Russia really coming up into the sanctions late last year and into the first part of this year was pushing a lot of crude out to the market for obvious reasons. Um, I don't think that was sustainable. And we also have already seen that they're going to cut back by a half million barrels a day. Um, we'll see how that plays out. Like I said, we've got a lot of variables in this equation. So it's not easy to get out. I think you're going to have some weakness in the crude price in the first part of the year as China fully gets cranked up as we, you know, by the end of the second quarter, I think you're going to start seeing uh, that uh, depending on how much weakness we have in the West, we're going to start seeing pressure on oil prices towards the end of this year. But then again, you know, maybe the weakness in demand takes us all the way down to fifty. I don't know. It, it, it's hard to say. I do know, and I did say that. You know, being in a dif- dif- disinflation, we're not in a deflation, a disinflationary environment inside of a secular inflation uh, be- uh, environment for this decade. Not only that, uh, being at the not feeling yet the full effects of the underinvestment, which will come. You know, every time demand does strengthen, you're going to see upward pressure on price just because we we do not have the ability to flex upwards because the investment hasn't been made. So this is something I like talking about. Um, you know, people are saying, well, you know, you guys, you oil bros, you energy bros, were are wrong. Um, you know, look, Europe made it through the winter. Well, they did. They spent a lot of money. Uh, they printed a lot of euros and bought a lot of cargo, LNG cargos, and they had a record... I won't say it was a record, but they had a very, very mild winter, plus the fact that they are deindustrializing Germany. A lot of industry is shut down. So you couple all that together. Yeah, you got through the winter, but is that really positive long term? And can the EU states spend a half a trillion euros or more a year um, you know, going out and outbidding the limited amount of LNG cargoes? I'm actually going to show you a slide coming up after this of one country that got. Uh, buzzsawed by that policy and is in an energy crisis that's giving up on LNG. So, anyways, uh, governments subsidize fossil fuel use. Even as global governments raise their ambitions to cut fossil fuels in the future, they spent a record $1 trillion last year, most of that was in the EU, subsidizing energy sources that are the main driver of climate change. Hmm. The spending by governments in 2022 was more than double total global investment renewable energy sources, according to figures from Bloomberg NEF. The splash of state cash on energy last year followed climate talks in November 2021 when world leaders pledged to end such subsidies. This is a quote from the IEA. The Glasgow Climate Pact emphasized that phasing out fossil fuel subsidies is a fundamental step toward a successful clean energy transition. However, today's global energy crisis has also underscored some of the political challenges of doing so. Yeah, the political challenges, um, the price goes up of energy three, four, five times in your country and you're out of office. So again, when politics and physics meet, physics wins every time. And politicians that are, why didn't they go to their populations and say, we know you're suffering we know prices are high. We know energy is short. But this is the opportunity, folks, for us to spend this money instead of on subsidies to keep you warm and to keep industry running, we'll spend it on renewables. This is our opportunity. They didn't do that because they'd be kicked out of office, okay? And so, again, energy security is what it ends up being. Every When everything is you know, hunky-dory and everybody's fat, dumb, and happy, that's when all these Schemes are floated about transitioning and running the world on unicorn, you know, past gas and all that stuff and rainbows and lucky charms and all that fun, fun stuff, lollipops and little kids, uh, you know, and picnics that goes out the window when the supply of energy goes away and then it becomes a matter of, um, you know, energy security. And that's what we saw, because if you don't do it, the population will become angry and throw your butt out and get somebody in there that will do it, because reality is reality. Facts are facts. And so why does that matter? Well, you know, Pakistan, maybe Europe didn't suffer, but a country like Pakistan with 200 million people did suffer. You know, when the EU came out and just started bidding on every LNG cargo and paying whatever they had to pay to get them so they wouldn't have a revolution in the EU, who suffered? Well, countries like Pakistan that didn't have the ability to uh, compete with those EU bids. And so the energy crisis just got moved from Europe to these emerging markets and these frontier markets, which you don't hear too much about. And so was Pakistan saying? Well, they're going to abandon LNG and they will use more coal. Pakistan plans to quadruple its domestic coal-fired capacity to reduce power generation costs and will not build new gas-fired plants in the coming years, its energy minister told Reuters on Monday as it seeks to ease a crippling foreign exchange crisis. A shortage of natural, because they can't compete, they don't have the money, they can't just print, nobody's going to take whatever they have, rupees, that they print up. I mean, you're going to take EUs over rupees, and you have to pay dollars or or, or euros, and they don't have the money. A shortage of natural gas, which accounts for over a third of the country's power output, plunged large areas into hours of darkness last year. A surge in global prices of LNG after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and an onerous economic crisis had made LNG unaffordable for Pakistan. Quote, LNG is no longer part of the long-term plan, Pakistan energy minister told Reuters, adding that the country plans to increase domestic coal-fired capacity to 10 gigawatts in the median term from 2.31 gigawatts currently. So that's 10,000 megawatts from 2,300 megawatts currently, so it's quadruple. So again this is back to energy security they're not using coal because they want to poison the earth i mean they have energy needs cannot live in a society and the people of pakistan will not put up with blackouts and so if you can't do it with clean natural gas that they have to import then they're going to bring coal in it because it's ubiquitous easy to store and can be used and the plants can be built built fairly quickly so that's what they're going to do because it's about energy security, it's about reality. And so when we say well we averted the energy crisis, no you you averted the energy crisis in the EU this winter because you got lucky and you basically bought every freaking cargo LNG cargo out there and brought it to Europe, but other people that in the world couldn't buy them. And so they're going to go back to they're going to use coal. And so this is why, you know, I say we have a molecule crisis. Yes, in the short term, coal prices are low. They, they're they off their, you know, recent highs. Like at Newcastle, I think they're around $200 a ton. They were recently above $400 a ton. And so you're going to have these cyclical moves inside, of, I think, again, a secular uptrend because no one's investing in new coal assets. And so they're going to, Pakistan's going to have to go out and compete now and look for coal. Or maybe they have internal sources. I don't know what Pakistan has for internal coal supply, but again, you have to, these are emerging It's a country of 200 million people. There's 330 million people in the U.S. Pakistan is not a small country, and there's many, many countries like this, right? Indonesia, the Philippines, you know, Malaysia, basically the entire African continent. That they're all heading in the same direction, folks, and so this relentless, even though you have maybe a short-term disinflationary environment or cyclical weakness, because of the underinvestment in molecules, uh, any, in my view, cyclical pullback is going to be short-term in duration because you just don't have the investment to meet the needs that these folks uh, have for energy. That still doesn't mean that these things, you know, like, remember, these things are still cyclical Um, But I think, you know, we're going to have cyclical pullbacks, I've said this before, inside of a longer secular trend. You know, if you bought energy stocks at, you know, in 2020 and hold them till, you know, December 31st, 2029, I think that you're going to see the chart go from the lower left to the upper right with, you know, periodic dips, but the chart's going to be up over time. I think that's, and that presents itself for trading opportunities Uh, of the cyclical nature you know there's no reason to take a 50 percent haircut um but again it just depends on your particular uh constitution your ability to trade uh what you want to do uh me i have i'm not that good of a trader although you know if something's up five six seven times in my portfolio i have a tendency to trim some profits i'm not gonna I'm, i'm that's just dumb at some point right so when you have multi-bagger situations, it's probably a good idea to take down some of that money and just lock in your profit. But anyways, back to the point, and the point being that uh, you know, as people get wealthier, they do, you know, people want twenty-four-seven electricity, and they're not going to. And if they can't do it with LNG, then they'll do it with coal. You know, ultimately the ultimately the story is nuclear long term probably long after I'm dead and buried, but uh, we're moving in that direction. And that's why we're ultimately so bullish on uranium longer term. Speaking of uranium, uh, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust increased the size of the um, ATM program. Uh, if you read here, it's a closed-end trust it cr- created to invest and hold all of its assets in physical uranium today, announced that the trust has updated its at-the-market equity program to issue up to an additional $1.3 billion of trust units. So basically what they did with this press release is say, the ATM allows them to go to the market. So anytime that the net asset value of the trust is positive, um, they have the ability to sell shares at the market, uh, trusts, and get cash that they can then use to buy more uranium. And so what they've done is they've, they've authorized the ATM program to be increased up to $1.3 billion of trust units. So that gives them one, basically just look at $1.3 billion of runway. That doesn't mean they have the cash yet, but they have the ability. They've registered that they've told this, uh, the, the securities, uh, folks, um, what their plan is. It's a shelf prospectus. You know, I'm not the intricacies of, of this, but basically that's what it is so that that, that they're well-prepared that anytime, uh that, that they need to they can issue additional units and t- get that cash in and so you've seen like in the last couple of weeks if you've been watching there's people on twitter that track this 24 7 every day they update it uh, john quakes is one of the main guys but you can also find there's another guy a couple other guys um and so you'll see those announcements right like okay sprout fund was trading at a 1.4 percent uh, premium, uh, Sprott issued so many shares, brought in this. I think that right now they've got like 40 something million dollars sitting in the bank, and they're out there, you know, buying a 100,000 pounds here, 200,000 pounds there. So, um, again, they're slowly but surely, uh, hoovering up the uh, uh, available spot market of uh, uranium, keeping that upward pressure. And again, if you listen to the Cameco, um, call, I mean, people are starting to utilities are now starting to come back and signing term deals. So, you know, we're in a bull market. You just got to, you know, buy the dips is how I look at it. There's nothing to do, you know, for almost a year. I didn't even talk about uranium. You know, we had the pullback. Uh, I've talked about this before in recent weeks. I don't need to keep rehashing it, but uh, you know, we've, we basically a lot of the tourists left because it wasn't, you know, going up a hundred percent a year for them like they wanted uh, but you know, I've shown all the charts. Pull up the charts of any of these things, and you're in a bull market. I mean, I don't know what else to say. You're outperforming the S and P handily, and the goal is to compound your wealth. The problem again is, again, I've said this before: people want to get rich quick, and you. And believe me, I'm 55. I made these mistakes in my 20s. You cannot get rich quick. The way to get rich is to get rich slow. Compound your money over time, and limit your losses. That's how you do it. And so here's another kind of school here for people to remind people, especially you young guys that are coming up um there's go look at the Forbes four hundred wealthiest people um there's not that many stock traders on there most of the people have owned businesses or are you know started a business so what you need to do is You have to understand, again, I've reiterated this before, but I'll say it again. When you buy, the purpose of being an investor, you have to be long-term because what you're doing, it's like, say you were going to start a business. Like I was looking at buying a business, okay, recently. And so I'm looking at the prospects for the business, what the thing can cash flow, if I can finance it, you know. So if I can get other people's money and I can get this much cash flow a year, I could be looking on 35 40% cash on cash return, okay? That's pretty significant. Um, and so that's how you should be looking at these companies. You should be looking for good companies, good businesses, a business that you would, that you would buy and that you would run yourself, okay? That's investing. Then you hold it for the long term. Because if you're not going to hold it for the long term as an investor, then you shouldn't be investing. It's that simple. Everything else is speculation, guys, trying to get a higher price based on trying to predict the future. And so, people, one of the problems that happens is people don't hold their winners long enough. They don't give the company the ability. You know, if you have a good business and it's generating cash and very good returns on on invested capital and returns on equity, you know, the idea is that cash flow comes in. You pay your expenses, you have leftover cash, and then your business is such a good business, you can take that money and reinvest it in the business at those high returns, okay? And if you're unable to do that because you have a mature business or very slow-growing business, then you have the ability to return the cash to shareholders, okay? And so that compounds over time. Again, you need to understand time preferences, having a long-term time horizon, and the how compounding works. And if you could find companies that are, you know, able to reinvest their capital at 15, 20% a year return internally, put that into a compounding machine. That's how, you know, Warren Buffett got wealthy by buying companies like, you know, Geico, American Express, Coca-Cola. These things just compounded over time. Reinvested the capital and, you know, 15, 20% a year every year internally. And that adds up over 20 years. You have tremendous growth there, and so if you don't allow that to happen because you're constantly jumping around like a frog from a, on a lily pads, jumping from here to there, or looking for the new shiny object, this is the mistake that a lot of young people make. And there's not that many businesses that fit into this category. They're 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 out there, um, and those what you should be focusing at, focusing on. And then this period where we have this bear market, this is your opportunity to get into those companies because they're not going to be discounted, okay? That's why you should be, that's what I'm doing. I'm putting together this list. Of course, I'll be sharing it in the AIA newsletter, but this is going to give us a tremendous opportunity as the market discounts, okay? The recession and these companies pull back. Some of these companies will grow right through the recession with no problem. Again, what is the stock market? In the short term, it's a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. So if you can buy it at a discount, to this machine, this business, whatever you want to call it, that can you know that's how you need to look at it. You need to analyze it like a business. It's not flipping baseball cards or pitching pennies, but we've we've trained you guys with our little flashy apps and Robin Hood. And it's kind of like a game, and fireworks go off when you make a trade, and it stimulates your dopamine and gives you a pleasure response in your brain. It's hard for people just to sit on their butt, but believe me, that is the way. Believe what I say. Don't waste your time. If you're in your early 20s and you can grasp these concepts now and then compound over time, you have that longer runway. You don't want to learn this when you're 45 or 50, okay? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. When's the second best time? Today. So let that time work for you. Identify those good companies. You have a tremendous opportunity now because we're in an economic weakness. The market is weak. Things are being discounted. Now you'll have that opportunity to do your homework and prepare your buy list because these businesses are going to go on sale because of the market sentiment and the, and the liquidity const, you know constricting um, and people get scared out. When Most people, why would they be investing in the stock market when you can get 5% on short-term T-bills t- risk-free? I mean, that should tell you all you need to know. But as they reliquify the system, which they inevitably will, we get the next up cycle. That's, you know, and like I said, many of these businesses, you'll start reading about them now, uh, their businesses might be slightly affected, but if they have a good business model, they'll go right through, like that home builder I talked about, NVR. Look at them during previous recessions. They grew right through recessions. So having the right business model, the right product, the right moat, whatever, these are the things you need to be looking at now doing your homework, putting your buy list together. As simple as if you want to get a start, say, where should I start? Go look at like the companies that have successfully paid dividends for multiple, multiple years. And if they are starting to get discounted, that's look at their business models. Okay, read about successful operators. Again, go to Compounding Qualities website and read the thousands of pages from Howard Marks, Warren Buffett, Greenblatt, all of these people. They explain how to do it. They explain how to find these companies. And so last slide here, this was uh, off a tweet. And this is where you make mistakes. And guys, I'm not bagging on you. It's not like me pointing at you going, you don't know what you're doing. I made all these mistakes myself. Let me clarify that. All these mistakes I made myself. That's what I'm trying to tell you. If I would have known what I know now when I was 20, I'd be Warren Buffett, okay, because the compounding... It really starts to kick in. <laughs> it doesn't kick in the second or third year. It starts kicking in in year 25 and stuff like that. So if you start when you're 20, by the time you're for- in your 40s, this thing's going to be ramp. It's going to start going exponential, hockey stick. So what does it say here? The 1998 research paper, quote, do investors trade too much, unquote, analyzed 10,000 brokerage accounts to compare whether the securities that investors buy outperform those they sell. Surprisingly, they found that it was actually the securities that were sold that outperformed those that were bought, highlighting that investors are indeed prone to trading too much and suggesting that often the best investment decision is to do nothing. I mean I want to quote Charlie Munger and you know I don't use I'm, this is his quote and I'm not embellishing it. he said, "You find good companies and then you quote just sit on your ass unquote that's what he said. And now he's 99 years old. He's cantankerous. You know, they asked him about, you know, like, what's the future of Berkshire Hathaway? Um, what's going to happen? He said, I don't know. I'll be dead. I mean, so the guy is a little bit in my mode. I like how he talks. But that's what he said. Find the good company that can compound. Buy it at a good price, like during this recession we're in or during this market pullback. And then just sit on your butt and let the thing, let the people that are running the business run the business. And as long as they continue to have those returns, you just have to sit and wait, okay? Let the business grow. You're buying a piece of a business. If you're not looking at it that way, if you don't want to be an investor, you can be a speculator. And I don't discourage people from speculating because we've had a lot of success in the newsletter speculating on some uh, turnarounds. But that's different than investing. And We are setting up for a, an opportunity here that will uh, allow investors to purchase good companies that are being well-run and have good business models at a discount and set you up for that longer-term investment uh, returns. So that's it. That's the school for this week. Uh, I'll try to include more of this stuff. I don't know if people like it or they don't, but I really want to get these messages across to folks because this is where the... real. It's not about what... If I give you a stock name or something like that, if you understand these kind of concepts, I don't, I've taught you how to fish. Okay. That's, if you know how to fish, you'll never go hungry. If you're just relying on me or somebody on the internet to give you stock picks, like you're some, like I've talked about those degenerate guys at the dog track that are looking for a hot tip. That's not going to get you anywhere. You need to understand, you know, success leaves clues where you're going in your investing journey many many successful people have already been and they given it they're giving it to you on a silver platter they're giving you the model okay they're telling you how to do it and most people don't go and look at it it's not hidden it's not like unknown okay it's hard to do it's like w- losing weight it's everybody knows how to do it but people don't want to do it because it's hard to do S- you know not stuffing your face with uh food and sitting on your butt is not how you lose weight. It's, you know, portion size, intermittent fasting, exercise. That's how you lose weight. And then you have to have the willpower to do it. Or as Charlie Munger says, sit on your dead butt and just let the thing compound. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Again, uh, appreciate uh, all of the uh, subscribers. Channel continues to grow. Leave comments, comments, I'll try to answer them. I I do look at the comments and I do answer them as best I can. Don't ask me about individual companies. I I really can't comment for the most part. If you want to know um, how we take the concepts that we talk about in these videos and translate them to actual investment and speculative uh, situations, um, that's what the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter is for. Uh, If you want to subscribe to that, it's $150 a year. It's... uh, a link in the show notes. So take a look at that if you're interested. Other than that, that's it for this week. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week.